Podcast New York. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Podcast New York Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. I am Mark James, and this week we return with the week experience. I will be representing the first week of the new year in 1977. Alongside the other duelers and the decades, they will be fighting for. First off, and back, back, back to the 80s, say hello to Man Crush. Yes, I'm back to the 80s with the week. Week. It it might be W-E-A-K this week experience, but yeah, I have uh, January 2nd through the 9th of 1988. Also joining us on the panel and rep in the 90s, please welcome back to the show, the professor, Drew Zachman. How are you guys? And yes, I have the 90s. I have January 2nd through the 8th, and I would also like to second Man Crush's comment. It is pretty damn weak. (laughs) (laughs) And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's guest judge is the actor, composer, and author you know and love as the Chulies gun rep in Kevin Smith's Clerks. All rise and welcome Judge Scott Schiaffo. Woo! <laughs> hey, guys. How are you, man? Thanks for having me. Welcome. Great to be here, man. Really, thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie, after all five rounds, we will go to a final wildcard round. Remember, duelers... To review the show, listen, subscribe, and play along at home, it's time for more Dueling Decades. Let's toss it right down to guest judge for the week, Scott Schiaffo, for the coin toss. All right, here we go, guys. Colin Tails. It is head, sir. Ah. All right, Man Crush, you win the coin toss and get to select our first category. All right, let's go with a real fun one, and I'm excited to see what you guys have. Uh, Let's go hot products for round one, and let's go to January 4th of 1988. So right at the beginning of 1988, there was a product that would change the Man Crush household in what we ate for lunch, or at least what I ate for lunch. Technically, uh, the Man Crush is probably, we didn't get this item until 1989, which is supposedly when the rest of the country got it. But at the beginning of 1988, a few lucky geographic regions got this sodium-enriched gem. And if you were to Google this one, it would actually say that it was introduced in Seattle. However, I found the first ad in a newspaper, 
uh, for this product in Euclair, Wisconsin, in their uh, the Leader Telegram for the shockingly low price of a dollar ninety nine. Uh, which is a bit over 450 in 2021, and it's also weird to say 2021. Uh, but this is nuts because this product now is a dollar 99 at my local Walmart because we buy them every now and then for my daughter. So they were ripping people off in 1988, maybe. But uh, in the mid 80s, Oscar Mayer, they were looking for a good place to offload their meat. Uh, to be exact, they were interested in uh, finding new ways to distribute their bologna and other various lunch meats. So they began organizing these focus groups with American mothers in mind. Uh, and what they found was moms just didn't have adequate time anymore to get ready for work, make their kids breakfast, and pack them a lunch. Now, this is 1988, but I mean, that's pretty old-fashioned thinking there. But uh, Oscar Mayer, they, they took their findings and they decided to create a prepackaged lunch that would feature two staples of the American diet, meat and cheese and crackers. Uh, luckily, uh, Philip Morris, which is the parent company of Oscar Mayer, they merged with Kraft and the rest is history. That's where they got their cheese from. Today, there are roughly 30 different variations of Lunchables to stuff processed meat and cheeses down our kids' throats and mine because I still eat it from time <laughs> to time. Uh, today, they come with lots of options. They got Capri Suns, Jello, Pudding, butter fingers there's little burgers little wieners tons of options now if you were like me as a kid though you couldn't just eat one lunchable <laughs> so i i typically pack two lunchables if i had to bring it which is probably why my parents bought me gobots instead of transformers because <laughs> i was eating their budget but uh here it is it's uh i give you lunchables <laughs> january 4th 1988 philip morris owned them yeah, the parent company. Holy shit. Speaking of cancer merchants. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Well played. All right, Drew Zachman. What do you have for the Hut Products round? All right. So uh, January 3rd, 1999, a new line of Chulis gum was released to all the quick stops in northern <laughs> New Jersey. Uh, and it was upsetting a string of local cancer merchants who were being sold by Nazis just taking orders. <laughs> <laughs> No, sorry, sorry, Scott. I had to get that in there, man. Oh, no. Well played. <laughs> Pandering. A little bit. Um, <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, I, You know, I love me some video games, you know, and I love me video game emulators, which, you know, kind of give you like a one-stop shop. I actually built one uh, early on during the pandemic out of an Android TV box and have all kinds of systems on there, right? I have Nintendo, Genesis, PS1. I have uh, Microsoft DOS on there. I love those things. Well, back on January 5th, 1999, Connectix introduced an amazing emulator to the world when they gave us the Virtual Game Station, which allowed Sony PlayStation games to be played on a desktop computer. Uh, it was initially released for the Mac in 1999 after being previewed at the Macworld iWorld by Steve Jobs. Now, if you guys recall, early 1999, the PS1 was at the peak of its popularity, and the Virtual Game Station was the first PS1 emulator for any platform that enabled games to run at full speeds. So that's kind of a big deal, um, you know, to be able to do that on a different system. And it was later made available for Windows and was decently priced. It was about 50 bucks, which isn't too shabby. Um, now, there was a problem, as Sony wasn't exactly... Uh, Scott Stapp, as they did not welcome this product with arms wide open, but Sony filed a lawsuit against Connectix for copyright infringement. 
which was eventually closed in favor of Connectix. However, Connectix was unable to sell the software in the meantime due to Sony being awarded a temporary injunction, which, I mean, that was kind of almost as good as winning the suit, really. Uh, but not long after that, Sony brought the VGS from Connectix and then discontinued it. But at that time, the PS2 was almost out, and people were kind of looking forward to that as opposed to sticking with the PS1. So um, that's what we got. We have the Virtual Game Station. Damn. You know what I just realized, too? You mentioned Steve Jobs. It looks like Scott is wearing, like, the Steve Jobs shirt. Almost. That he wore. Yeah, no, he, he would be with... <laughs> Didn't he? Yeah, it would be like way up. I got the ponytail going. I don't know. Oh, man. I don't know if Jobs did the tail. Did he? I don't know. I I love technology, but I'm not a Mac guy, so I'm not that up on Jobs. Do you have sandals on? (laughs) No, no, no. All right. right. So he's not. He's not dressed like him. All right, guys. For my hot product, we're going to give the old comic rack a spin. So January 1st, 1977, we get the first issue of Miss Marvel. Carol Danvers, Miss Marvel, she first appeared in Marvel Superheroes number 13 back in March of 1968. She appeared there as a non-superpowered officer in the United States Air Force who just happens to get caught up in an explosion with an actual superhero, Captain Marvel. While his Kree DNA merges with hers, and she unknowingly gains all of his powers and abilities. And that's where Mrs. Marvel number one picks up. She moves to New York. She begins work for the Daily Bugle's Woman's Magazine. Uh, She hangs out with Spider-Man and Mary Jane and then has another uh, one of her recent blackout spells. You know, I'm kind of hoping that was due to the Mary Jane, though. And then (laughs) (laughs) luckily she changes into Miss Marvel just before arriving at the Bugle after J. Jonah Jameson was kidnapped by the Scorpion. Of course, she saves the day and J. Jonah Jameson, who hates the fact that he was just saved by a woman. So uh, Miss Marvel would go on to later be known as Binary, and she became a staple in the Avengers. Well, to this day, Miss Marvel, now known as Captain Marvel, got her own movie in the MCU in 2019. Mm. So Miss Marvel, number one, written by Jerry Conway and cover art by the great John Romita. Wow, you made it sound like she caught a VD from Captain Marvel. <laughs> no, she didn't catch like, a VD they... from Captain Marvel, although a few years after this, she did give birth to her own rapist. So, oh. I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> didn't I have that for a worst? I had that for a worst of episode, I think, wow. last December. Yes, you did. <laughs> I did. Oh, man. It all comes around. So she got special powers and a cold sore? that's pretty good then passed it on all right so let's toss it down to scott chiaffo for the ruling on the hot products round oh man well you know the the, i love the history lesson in the comic book uh and the backstory and all that came from that not being a game guy a gamer guy uh, i could appreciate that uh drew but um that's a that's a realm that's I I just I mean I again I appreciate it. I have a lot of friends who are gamers but it's not something personally uh, I follow the Lunchables things is nuts and has probably created more strokes <laughs> than than I Fat created kids. in the eighties and nineties doing blow um, <laughs> I gotta go with the I gotta go with Mark on this one. 
<laughs> That's a good choice. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. I mean, be I, I'm I'm not a comic. I'm not a comic guy, honestly. I, I you know I know a lot of people that come out of Kevin's world. Uh, a lot of them are big comic book fans. A lot of his characters are uh, mall rats. Was all based on guys who were comic book maniacs, comic book men. Seven seasons of that. Um, but I I'm not a comic book guy per se. I dig the movies. I enjoy a lot of the movies. And I enjoy what goes into the stories and just hearing Mark explain all of the backstory and going back to that was 78 or whatever. 77. 77. That that's pretty uh pretty powerful stuff overall. And uh that's gonna get my vote. All right. So that means I pick up a point and take control of the board. Uh you know what? We're gonna go to the news round next. Can't wait. <laughs> So for my news story, we're going to go to the Quad City Times in Davenport, Iowa, January 2nd, 1977. In an article which headline reads, An Invention to Aid the Clumsy Dialer by Clay Thompson. If necessity is the mother of invention, then exasperation may be its first cousin. If you've ever been exasperated by dialing a wrong telephone number, especially on a long-distance call, you'll be pleased to learn that a Bettendorf inventor has an answer to your problem. Robert Reisdell, a former employee of Illinois Bell, is currently seeking a patent for Digitel, a device that gives a telephone dialer an electronic digital readout of the number being dialed. I think it'll save a lot of people a lot of time. It's a basic idea, said Reisdell, who's 27 years old. His invention, once on the market, will consist of a device built into or attached to a telephone that will use an LED light or a light-emitting diode to display a number being dialed while it is being dialed before the connection is made. So this is what I have for my news story. It's something that we have on every single phone now, and we just take for granted. Matter of fact, if it wasn't, if this feature wasn't working on your phone, you would think your phone was broken. Yep. Basically, when you dial a number before, you get to see all the numbers you're pushing in on a display before you connect to the call. So he goes on in the article to say that he thought this had a lot of financial applications uh, because banks recently had started uh, sending money over telephones and they want to make sure it goes to the right account or to the right person. Unfortunately, I don't know if he actually got the patent or not, because there were a few <laughs> other people that were working on something similar, including one gentleman who devised a device that would allow you to dial a telephone with a calculator for some reason. Wow. So, Very nice. Yeah, but taking, taking it all the way back to 1977 was something that, well, we, we all use every day and never give it a thought. Do you remember? I mean, I'm sure Scott remembers this, too. Uh, back in the day, if you dialed a long distance phone number, remember how much money that shit costs? If you were on the phone oh, for yeah. like 10, 20 minutes, oh, you paid. Insane. Yeah. There was like a, the first minute was always more expensive than all the other minutes. Yep. And then it would rack up so quickly. He actually cites that in the article as one of the pros to his invention. That way you're not misdialing and getting the con early connection fee every yep. time you dial a wrong number. So. I appreciate that. It's a, it's a good quality assurance thing that he was doing there. Yeah, yeah that is. That's pretty cool. That's, that's early technology that uh, probably blew their minds at the time. But like you said, we take for granted now. And I can relate to that whole thing about the 
how expensive it was to call. I used to, to drunk dial the 800 sex numbers in the 90s. <laughs> and then I would get these outrageous bills, like like hundreds, several hundreds of dollars, because I'd be blackout drunk talking to some girl for hours. <laughs> yeah, those were my early 90s. <laughs> So that wouldn't have helped me much. That invention wouldn't have helped me, but uh, I can relate to the madness of that. You could have made more calls. Yeah, I probably I, I would have maybe uh, stayed conscious of what I was spending. But I, I would not have. I was two sheets to the wind, unfortunately. Oh, God. <laughs> what was the most expensive call you ever had? Do you remember? Well, one was. Uh, well, it might not seem expensive in 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 the bigger picture, but it was. Uh, over five hundred dollars. Wow! Holy shit! Yeah, it was one night. It was incurred in one night. I was, you know, binge drinking and see. Instead of using the sex line, I would get on there and just really talk with them and get into it, and they just stay on. Of course, they right. So and yeah, it's just pretty sad because of course I didn't remember. I would get these bills and be shocked. Because I would black out literally, you know, from all the drinking and all the other substances. So it was a pretty bad problem, man. Man, but the the question everybody wants to know though is, did you finish? (laughs) (laughs) Taking a page out of Mallrats. I don't think I ever got to finish because there I was all excited, like thinking partying with her, you know, using the line for all the wrong reasons, really. (laughs) You know, it was like, hey, babe, what you wearing? And blah, blah, blah. It was just getting into a conversation and talking about movies and I'm just drinking and it was crazy. How man. much is this anyway? Oh, don't worry about it. Just... <laughs> you want to talk you want to talk about TV? What are you talking about TV? All right, Drew Zachman. What do you have for the news round? Well, uh, speaking of finishing, January 7th, 1999, impeachment trial begins after the House voted to impeach Bill Clinton for lying about his affair with Monica Lewinsky. Uh, I think he finished. I could be wrong. <laughs> Dude, this I, is like the third time you've brought up Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> I think it's like at you're, least the second time. Hooked. I think this is so. So what I'm talking about today is uh, the actual like beginning of the Senate trial. Uh, but I'm pretty sure I have brought up before, like maybe the actual verdict of what happened. And then maybe uh, I, I think, think it was another... a star report. Oh, uh, is that it was what it was? Report. Yeah, I, think I so. forget. Um <laughs> Uh, there was a lot of stuff going on Bill Clinton back then. But anyway, so a uh, quick history lesson. On December 19th, 1998, the House of Representatives voted to impeach Bill Clinton on grounds of perjury to a grand jury. Uh, and then they actually uh, passed that one, uh, 228 votes to 206. And then also obstruction of justice. And that one passed 221 to 212. The second and fourth articles were rejected which uh, the count of perjury in the Jones case and then the abuse of power. Now, the proceedings against Clinton were for high crimes and misdemeanors involving a sexual harassment lawsuit filed against Clinton by Paula Jones and from Clinton's testimony denying he had engaged in a sexual relationship with White House intern Monica Lewinsky. Now, let's move forward to the date that I have, January 7th, 1999. And on that date, the Senate trial began with Chief Justice William Rehnquist presiding. And we eventually got the verdict on February 12th, 1999, as both charges were defeated, not obtaining the two-thirds votes required. So Clinton stayed in office, and I don't know about you guys, but I miss the times when the worst thing a guy in power did was get helmet from an intern. 
So anyway, yeah, January seventh, nineteen ninety nine, the Senate trial for impeachment of Bill Clinton began. Wow, I, you, again, the nineties are foggy for me, unfortunately. <laughs> but I hear that was late nineties. I thought that was a lot earlier in the nineties for some reason. I'm thinking, I, I don't know why that seems it's surprising me. It was so late in the nineties, but again, uh, you know, all kidding aside, the nineties were wonderful to me. But at the same time, I was. I was floating around a lot during those that decade, but um, yeah. And you talk about it. You mentioned the abuse of power. Yeah. You think about what just happened. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we don't need to get into any of it. I know we don't yeah. want to get into the political stuff because it's a mess. Everybody's got their different thoughts and ideas of opinion, but wow. That they, that, that you that I didn't even remember or would not have even recalled that Clinton's thing involved a real abuse of power because I, I guess they felt like he, like took advantage. He of used her or whatever. His, yeah, yeah. But I mean, she was a consenting adult. Oh, yeah, she, of course. She never cried like it was a rape thing or abusive. She went right along with it. Right? It was. Am I making it sound good or am I, am I trying to clean it up for him? I thought that she dug it. I wish it. that was our only problem. Now is that somebody got a blowjob? Yeah, oh yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> No, yeah, I think she, I mean, she went along with it and until, yeah. she, until she took that dress and like put it in a Ziploc bag and was like, <laughs> oh, I'll save this for later. Yeah. Then it got weird quick. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and now she makes purses. Go figure. Oh, boy. All right, man crush. What do you have for the news round? Oh, man, let's I'm going to knock your socks off. Ready? Uh, January 6, 1988. Uh, there's a lot of shit going on in January 1988. But this right. This is mega. I came across this little article and it, it caught my interest because I had no fucking idea that this was going to be a thing. And I've mentioned this 47 times in the show before. There were two movies that were required viewing for every young man growing up in the 80s. And those were Predator and Commando. Well, we almost got a follow-up to one of those, and it would have been epic. Here's the story from the Daily News. The title of this article is uh, Commando 2 on hold. It says, don't expect to see Commando 2 plunging into production anytime in the near future. Although the script was completed last summer, Arnold Schwarzenegger has yet to commit to making the film the follow-up to his 1985 Commando movie. And as for whether the situation is likely to change soon, and I quote, things are still in a holding pattern as far as Arnold is concerned, says screenwriter Stephen DeSouza, the man who penned both the original uh, Commando, that is, and the sequel. So after seeing this article, I had to track this thing down and find out what this was going to be about. Now, if you Google Commando 2, you're just going to get some Bollywood knockoff Commando because I guess it was released a couple of years ago and that takes up all the search results. But then I kept looking. And I found an interview with Steven DeSouza, who was the, the screenwriter that I was talking about before. And he gives the dirty details that we missed out on from Commando 2. And this is what it was going to be about. Let me, uh, I, I quoted him in, from this thing. Uh, this is all from uh, Steven DeSouza. He said, I did write a sequel. It is floating around the internet. Uh, Frank Darabant even did some revisions on it. In that movie, I would look at the experiences, how they change people such as how they did in Die Hard 2, where people reference how famous John McClane is after the events of the first film. So for Commando 2, we figured that Arnold, after blowing up half of Los Angeles, achieved some notoriety. 
He retires from the army, and by the time the sequel occurs, is running a security firm. The plot would have seen Arnold hired by a big corporation to oversee their security, to protect their executives from being kidnapped, and to stop people from breaking into their building and make sure all the computers are secured. But there's a twist. So he sets it up. He hires the most dangerous people to be guards in the building. And then lo and behold, he discovers that the people he's working for are in fact illegal arms dealers. And that's the big corporation. It's just simply a front. So by the end of the movie, Jenny, who is Alyssa Milano, is Arnold's daughter in the movie in the first film. And uh, Cindy, who is Ray Dong Chong, she was a stewardess in the first one, is now a lawyer. They're both trapped inside the building. And Arnold has to defeat all the people that he just hired. All the meanest, toughest guards, as well as all the high-tech security systems and guard dogs. Everything. Would you go see that? That, and this is before Die Hard came out. Oh, I would wow. go see that. I would definitely go yeah. see that. Like, has, what the yeah. f- you know, it has like a little, a small hint of Eraser in there. Yeah, a little, a little yeah. bit. A little this bit. is like, this is like eight years before Eraser oh, yeah, came yeah, yeah. out. So, sure. I mean, this would have been sick oh, if he yeah. did it. I, mean, I, I would have definitely what, seen that. What did he do? He did Twins instead? I guess, I'm, Twins was 88, right? <laughs> that was 87 or 88, yeah. Oh my god. So he could have done Commando too. This would have been fucking unreal. But I think he at that point though, I wasn't he trying to branch off, you know, get away from like the big muscular guy thing, kind of get more into like the comedic roles. Well, he did it. He, he did twins and, and then, then kindergarten, kindergarten cop, cop was like 90 or 91. 90, right. yeah. Right, right. So, but still, I think that's how he ushered in the 90s. He could have fit that one in. Did you say Frank Darabont? It was, uh, you're talking about the other guy? Yeah, Frank Darabont. He he did uh, revisions on it. Frank Shawshank Redemption Darabont. That's a big time writer, yeah. Yeah. See, like, I just would be shocked that he would even work in that, you know, that I, I would never even think of him in that genre. How amazing is that, though? Like That is pretty amazing. I mean, I love a good, I love any good Hollywood story because I love movies almost as much as I love music. Music is my number one passion in life. But uh, I love good movie stories. And, you know, Stallone tells a lot of really hilarious stories about how Schwarzenegger, not that I know any of these guys personally, <laughs> but um, uh, that Schwarzenegger was chasing him. Literally, if he did him, he would do it. Arnold's next movie, the title would always be a rip of, of Stallone's last movie. And like they, it was like he was running neck and neck. He couldn't get rid of the guy. And the guy was like, you know, using him as a springboard in some sense, I guess. I don't know, you know, how true that might really be. But he, he I know he cited a lot of really good examples. But, um, wow, we got three good ones here, guys. I don't know what's good, where, where to go with this. <laughs> I really like, I like Drew's. I really like the whole Bill Clinton thing. I, I love, uh, I was a Bill Clinton fan. I felt that that really was a, it was a crappy thing that ended up happening, unfortunately. And and then the Clintons are not, there was a lot of fall from grace and, and I can't say I'm the biggest Clinton fan now, but I don't know. I, I think I'm going to go with Drew on this one. All right. Oh, man, Drew over Commando too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know why? That's, it was a little bit of a difficult thing because I told you how much I love uh, any story about the making of films. Uh, action films are not my biggest go-to 
genre, although I enjoy a lot of them. You know, I, I'm a crime drama guy. I'm a comedy guy. Um, I, actually, now as I'm getting older, I'm a big documentary guy. Hell yeah. But um, yeah. action is it at comedy action eddie murphy comedy action movies who didn't love those oh yeah but um well i didn't mention that eddie murphy was actually supposed to be in commando too <laughs> do you are you making that up just yeah i'm just bullshitting mouth? but that would have been great because do you know that stallone passed on beverly hills yeah Town? that would have been yeah. that would have been weird though he well that wound up being cobra right yeah it ended up being cobra he wanted a more serious cop whereas what they were trying yeah. to do was, you know, more aligned with like a, a comedy and Eddie Murphy crushed it. Oh, Thank God. God. Did he ever? Yeah. Thank God that that happened too. That would have been a weird movie. I mean, Cobra is great, but I think a lot of people still don't like Cobra and Cobra always feels like two movies in one. Like it's completely different. And then all of a sudden there's a cult and everything else. And they start mixing things. Is that together. the first time we see the wife on screen? No, she was in stuff before. You're talking about Bridget Nielsen? Well, I mean, with him, though. With him, yep. Yeah, that was the big deal of that movie. And her best scene is the uh, the ketchup on the fries. And she's in Beverly Hills Cop 2, Two, right? the second yeah. one, yeah. Yep, yep, she's the bad one in that. Yeah, what a lineage we had going on there. <laughs> All right, Drew Zachman, you pick up a point, but more importantly, you take control of the board and get to select our next category for our final one-point round. All right, I am. Uh, I'm gonna go with television, and I'm gonna go with January fourth, nineteen ninety nine, a date that will live in infamy, where a grown man got fingered on live television. Nice. I'm of course talking about the finger poke of doom. <laughs> now, if anybody doesn't know what this is all about, Hulk Hogan was set to square off against Kevin Nash, who were at this point in time members of opposing factions in the New World Order, and during the main events. WCW heavyweight champion Kevin Nash was facing off against Hollywood Hogan, and during the match, which lasted all of like 10 seconds, Hogan like finger poked Nash in the chest, and Nash fell backwards very dramatically, and Hogan easily pinned him for the win, thus reuniting both New World Order factions and becoming the new WCW heavyweight champion. And people were not too happy about this, uh, with these shenanigans, shall I say. Uh, also, they announced on air... That over on Raw is War, which actually probably is what I was watching at that time. I was more of a WWF guy. But Mankind was set to win the WWF championship from The Rock. And they actually kind of tried, uh, they did spoil it on the air. They actually said Mankind was set to win the WWF championship from The Rock as an attempt to get people to stay watching <laughs> WCW. But according to the Nielsen ratings, that backfired as over half a million viewers switched channels from Nitro which is on TNT, uh, they switched over to Raw is War on the USA Network. So Eric Bischoff's plan backfired as the overall ratings for that night had Raw is War at 5.7 and WCW Nitro at 5.0. So January 4th, 1999, I give you the finger poke of doom. Wow. <laughs> and those, those are like the dark days of WCW, but it just shows a sign of the times. In 1999, the worst of the two shows were doing a five. Yeah. And then we yeah. look at like, we look at like AW or we look at like SmackDown now. What's SmackDown getting like 1.5 now? They're not even hitting two yet. No, they're, that's they're hovering the... around the low twos. Oh, are they in the low twos? Yeah. Or actually, I'm thinking of Raw. Raw is like around like 1.5 now. Yeah. It's come down quite a bit. It's amazing. There's too much on. A yeah. lot of big names at that time too on for both of them. 
Yeah, that, that dude, that was the, the funnest time in wrestling in, the, in my life. All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the television round? Oh, boy. Let's go uh, January 4th, 1988. And I, I love when we get to tie in old episodes into picks. Much less shit that I need to explain here. So I, since Scott wasn't on the episode uh, with the fellas from the Orange Years, I'll break down a little synopsis. Although, if you are a Nickelodeon fan or you were a Nickelodeon fan growing up, I seriously recommend going out, check out the documentary The Orange Years. If you haven't seen it yet, it's fantastic goes over Nickelodeon right from the beginning. Plus, those guys were awesome judges a couple months ago. Uh, anyhow, by 1988, this was like well outside of my wheelhouse by this point. Um, it was still a big deal. But by January 1988, I already owned my own copy of Appetite for Destruction. I saw pretty much every horror movie on cable. So kids programming was a thing of the past, even for me at 10 years old. So I was, this doesn't compute with me. Uh, but... On the episode that we had a couple months ago, we talked a lot about Naked Night. We only broached on this topic a little bit. And as I mentioned, I wasn't a big fan as a kid. However, I think for any parent now or even then, for a child age two to six, this particular programming was greatly appreciated. It was a saving grace and still is. Much like Rhonda Shear was my babysitter on Fridays and Saturday nights watching USA Up All Night growing up. Many kids had Nick Jr. as their babysitter growing up while mom and dad, they were doing other shit. So prior to January the 4th, 1988, Nickelodeon, they relied like heavily on two particular preschool shows. Uh, We've mentioned this before. We even serenaded the audience with our own devastatingly horrible rendition of the pinwheel theme. And I'm not going to do that again. But on January the 4th, Nickelodeon began adding new shows on their Nick Jr. lineup. And this is where they they launched Nick Jr. Honestly, I don't know any of these shows. Uh, by the time my daughter was born in 2006, they already had a whole slew of new shows. However, I give you Nick Jr. Uh, this is every kid's new babysitter from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday. And that's exactly what every parent uses it for. You take You put your kid in the playpen push that shit right in front of the television and you go like, I don't know, watch porn or something. I don't know what people do. (laughs) Like you go do your own thing for a couple hours while your kids just standing there watching. uh, I don't even know what the names of the shows are anymore. I think my daughter grew up. It was like Dora and Diego. I don't even know what's on anymore. I love Dora. That show is great. SpongeBob was my thing. I watched SpongeBob with her. God, I even think SpongeBob was that old already. That's like, he's like 20, right? Yeah, late 90s. It's crazy. Wow. All right. For my television selection, let's go to an episode of Wonder Woman. Season 1, episode 9, aired January 8th, 1977. So in this episode, the buxom badass herself helps stop a Nazi agent named Wotan, who has surgically altered doubles replace a man in charge at the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. Now, his dastardly plan is to steal the $2 engraving plates and use them to collapse the American economy. <laughs> Sounds like a foolproof plan, right? Well, $2. Of $2. Well, actually, this episode is loosely based on fact. During World War II, those zany Nazis did attempt to counterfeit the $1 in $100 bills, but 
They were never successful. <laughs> they did manage to produce about $500,000 worth of British five pound notes. Luckily, never saw the, uh, never saw the, their way into circulation. But this episode marks the first time Wonder Woman uses her tiara as a weapon or a boomerang, hurling it at the villain's raft, puncturing it, and preventing his escape to sea. The episode was actually filmed on the Culver City backlot, the same one they used in Batman a decade earlier, in the bureau where they have all the, the plates and the, the financial printing bureau. It's actually the same facade as the Gotham Police Headquarters. So, the complete series was recently released on HBO Max on December 23rd of 2020, ahead of the release of Wonder Woman 84. So, you can now go and check out some Wonder Woman on your own. And a little connection in this, Wotan, the uh, Nazi villain, is played by James Olsen, who you'll recognize from the aforementioned Commando as Major General Franklin Kirby. Very nice. I love when that ties together. Nice. He, he must have been a total like out of all the bills that you're going to counterfeit two dollar bills got to be like the worst one to possibly because <laughs> oh, <counterfeit. yeah. laughs> anybody that gets a two dollar bill stares at it because you never see it you're like oh my god exactly you wouldn't know <laughs> yeah. what you're looking it could be monopoly money for all you know <laughs> unless you're a paper boy on a bmx <laughs> right two dollars <laughs> well this is a tough one but it's not tough for me only because i'm uh, you said uh, it was in 88. The episode with the Wonder Woman was Wonder Woman uh, was 77. 77. 77. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Well, that's because we're going back to the ultimate, right? The Linda Carter. Right. Now, I just have a great Linda Carter story because, you know, we do a lot of conventions. I've done a ton of conventions over the last 10 or 20 years, thanks to all the really wonderful uh, fans of Kevin's movies. Uh, they keep us out there. We were out on the road pretty steadily until COVID. But she was a sweetheart of a person. And in the green room, uh, where there's all kinds of personalities, you have a lot of different levels of stars. You have people who are, you know, household names. You've got, you got your Shatners running around and uh, Bruce Campbell, who I love. And, you know, there's different levels and, People have different recognizability and Linda Hamilton also happened to be in this green room where we were all breaking for dinner. Uh, but L Linda came up to me, introduced herself like as if I didn't know who she was. Right? <laughs> you know, as I mean, hi, I'm Linda Carter, like literally. And that's sweet. She was just a doll and so down to earth and, you know, when you're in a, you know, I'm a character actor and I got very fortunate to be cast as the Julie's Gum Guy because that was one of the roles in that film that really stood out other than the lead characters. For sure. And being a character actor was something that I was really, that was a dream for me. Of course, I wanted to play leads if I had the opportunity, but I knew a good character actor could keep working and working and working and just, you know, whether he's the best friend or he's this or he's that, whatever he is. But um, so for her to have been that sweet to somebody who she, you know, she had relatives or she might've had a niece or a nephew who was a big clerks fan. So she was very sweet about that, but just because she was so sweet and down to earth. And meanwhile, she's a really big icon 
And so was Linda Hamilton. She was the same thing. You know, we all know who, who she was. She didn't, she literally came up and introduced herself by name and, and that kind of thing. It leaves a nice impression on somebody who's, you know, on the lower echelons like myself, you know, uh, calling 800 sex numbers. <laughs> throughout the 90s. How many of those people that you called did you uh, ask to play Wonder Woman? Oh, good question. <laughs> well, no, like I said, you know, it never got there with me because it wasn't it wasn't about the sex. I was a phone drunk, which I maybe you guys know somebody is a lot of people and I, you know i like to i like to make jokes about it but alcoholism isn't a joke and if yeah, you know anybody's right. suffering with it it's a horrible thing it's a, whether it's a friend or a family member it takes a lot of people hostage it's a terrible terrible affliction but um and being a phone drunk was a big thing people who abuse alcohol hop on the phone and they'll tell you the same story a hundred times i was one of those guys and it was not fun for the people close in my life. So I would get these women online you know, on phone and I was just happy to have somebody to talk to and drink. So we never, I never got into role play and never got into anything. And I, you know, I was pretty much three sheets to the wind anyway, but um, she was the sweetest thing in the world. So I got to go with, uh, I got to go with the Linda Carter and Mark James on this guy. Sorry. This is kind of like a, it, well, it's a combination of a couple of things that you said, but I read the story about, when you went to uh, audition for your role, you want to tell that? Cause it sounds like a pretty crazy story. It would happen. Oh, I was uh, on against the myth that is sort of been broken now, but for many years, people thought that everybody in the film was a friend or a relative of Kevin's. Right. And that wasn't true. There was a good, a good amount of us, we're just actors that answered an audition notice. And I was from an hour and a half away. I'm way up north in New Jersey. I'm 15 minutes outside of New York City, Bridger Tunnel. I was, you know, I wasn't anywhere near Red Bank or Leonardo down the south where those guys were. So the audition was like an hour and a half drive one way. And I was always super early for anything at that point. I OCD along with the addictions. Um so I would, you know, I would be two hours early before I would be 15 minutes late. So I got there really early. It was a beach town, the Atlantic Highlands, where they were having the auditions. And it was closed. It wasn't that time of year where the beaches were open, I don't believe, or from what I remember, it was cold, actually, I think. But I had wandered out on the onto a jetty to rehearse, to be alone and just do my thing. So apparently from you know, from the, from back on the, sh uh, on the beach there, it looked like there was some kind of lunatic out on the jetty, <laughs> you know, gesturing wildly and talking to himself. And back then there were no cell phones. You know, if you saw somebody talking to themselves, they were talking to themselves. So they thought there was some maniac who was either inebriated or possibly going to hurt himself out on the jetty. So, you know, the security were calling me in and I got really worried because I thought they were going to hold me up to get to the audition. And I just said, guys, you know, please, if, if you got to hold me or you got to do whatever you got to do, let me go to the audition first. It's right up the block. And they knew it was legit. And when they saw me that I was not inebriated, that was in my right mind. They were just like, well, stay off the jetty and go to your audition and good luck and whatnot. But, and I never got to really tell that story for a while 
because I don't want to introduce a crazy, weird, negative thing about me. To because I I met all those people the first time. I didn't know Kevin. I didn't know any of those folks. You know, like I said again, it's a myth that everybody in that first movie was a friend or a family member. Right. Brian O'Halloran didn't know him. He auditioned. Yep. Marilyn Gigliotti. She did not know them personally. Lisa Spoonhour, who's sadly we lost not long ago. Uh, we, of course, Jay Muse, and we all know Jeff Anderson. And, you know, there were people that were friends and family working on it. But there were also actors that came, auditioned, look, hoping to get a gig. Because back then, it's not like now you throw a rock and you hit somebody making a movie on their phone. Back then, the independent film was still very new and exciting. And it's exciting now, don't get me wrong. But it was a lot harder to find somebody shooting a movie in New Jersey. So when I saw that... I didn't care how far I, far I had to drive to go audition. I had to be a part of that. Uh, it's a great story, though. Was there ever talk? And we we will get back to the game in the middle. Every time we're in the middle, I, I like to use this time. So I apologize to the people that are listening. But I always I feel like this is always a good point. Mark's laughing. Sometimes he gives me looks. But um, I think your character definitely had the opportunity to spin off into something else. Because it was kind of like a, a real deal character. Everybody knew the Chulies Gum Guy. Was there ever talk about doing something like following the Chulies Gum Guy, being a scumbag at all these convenience stores and starting riots and things like that? Did they ever talk about that with you? No, not really. Not, not I mean, not Kevin. Um, oh, certainly, the fans, the fan, fans, fans with their fan fiction have written stories. I've I've been sent scripts that are based on Julie's gun guy, which is pretty insane because really we don't know. The whole joke is he comes off as this sincere guy. Who's on some kind of anti-smoking thing who cares about people's health when really he just wants you to chew gum. He doesn't care. He, if you smoke and chew the gum, you're good with him. <laughs> he doesn't care. It's all about the gum, you know? And that's how I, I mean, I played it very seriously which is how I think it became the way it was written. I was very fortunate. I was very lucky. That character in that scene was absolutely written to stand out and to be a sort of flag post five minutes into the movie to tell people, Hey, this is going to be a wild ride because the first few minutes, you know, Dante gets up late. He rolls over, he gets called in you don't really know what kind of ride you're going to be going on until the gum guy. And then, you know, this is going to be a crazy, bizarre ride. And I was very fortunate to get that role as a character actor because it really stood out. You know, the fans and surprisingly, the fans really embrace him in a positive way, which is weird because he's an asshole. <laughs> yep. As soon as you like roll up your sleeves to go dig into the bag, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. It's yeah. perfect. Perfect stuff. All right. So, Mark, you took the point. All right. So I picked up the point in that one. Uh, let's see. You know what? Let's go over to the music round. All right. So released New Year's Day, 1977. I give you the eighth studio album by Santana Festival. We'll go over to the Ottawa Journal in a review written by Chris Cobb. Headline reads, The Jungle Beat Has Disappeared. Santana's music has been exploring new ranges as of late, and this album is indicative of the band's present direction. 
Since the Woodstock Festival of the late 60s, Carlos Santana has kept the group buoyant, if not always, on the peak of success. Festival contains some of the best music Santana has put out in a long time. The jungle beat is gone, but the familiar style is still there. From all angles, the festival is quite a quality album, full of exciting, innovative music. Perhaps one of the most important things to note is that the old Santana Jungle Beat trademark no longer applies. The album is distinctive, though without being repetitive. So this one actually peaked at number 27 on the Billboard 200 chart and at number 29 on the R&B album charts. I actually saw Santana back in the summer of 97, uh, and he was tearing it up still then. They played with a band called Rusted Root. Fantastic show. And then when I was in college, I had a radio show back then. I actually contacted his press secretary to try to get some music and press materials for my show. And she was telling me that Santana was coming out with a new album soon, and they're thinking it's actually going to be pretty big. Uh, That album ended up being Supernatural, so... Yeah, right. <laughs> slightly big. Slightly big. Slightly big. It, it did all right. It did all right. Sold a couple. Sold a couple copies. Crazy big. So yeah, yeah. That's what I give you for my music pick, Santana with Festival. Nice. All right, Drew Zachman, what do you have for the music round? Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised Santana released an album that early in January. I feel like early January usually kind of like sucks for when it comes to music releases. Usually, artists don't put stuff out. You know, usually then, or if they put it out like at the end of the year, it's usually like some kind of holiday album or early January. They usually kind of stay away from that. So I was surprised that, you know, somebody of Santana's stature did. But the only two albums I saw were not, I would say, ideal. So I'm going to go a different route here. It took a bit of, uh, to research this one, but this option actually starts in May of 1997. And it really stood out to me. Now, uh, what I'm talking about is actually Aerosmith, and they started their Nine Lives tour on May 8th, 1997 in Newcastle, England. And normally when a band tours, they tour for about a year or so, which was to be the case with the Nine Lives tour. However, while they were out on the road in 1998, thanks to the explosion in popularity of the theme song from Armageddon, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing, that tour was extended. And they wound up being on the road from May 1997 until July 17th, 1999. Now, the date I'm going with here is their January 4th concert, which is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the Pittsburgh Civic Center. And I have like really nothing to talk about that show other than um, the tour was pretty awesome. They played a total of 204 shows with 283 actually being scheduled, but 43 had to be canceled and 36 were rearranged, uh, namely due to a knee injury sustained by Steven Tyler and uh, also drummer Joey Kramer, who suffered second-degree burns during a freak accident at a gas station. But uh, during those shows, Aerosmith played 24 songs, usually uh, lasting around two and a half hours, so not too shabby. So that's what I'm going with, a concert from January 4th, 1999, Aerosmith. And they are amazing in concert. I saw them at uh, the Get a Grip tour. It was 93. Yeah, that the was Jack- the tour before Whoa. this one. Yeah. Yeah, with Jackal opening. And that oh, was, wow. in, I think, <laughs> I think that was in Pennsylvania. We saw that. That was up by Scranton at uh, Montage Mountain. We saw them. Okay. They were amazing. It was one of my first concerts I saw. I actually have a cousin who saw uh, the uh, Joe Perry project years ago. They had played with uh, Ace Freely's solo band. It, you know, Joe Perry project played first. Ace Freely came out after he was the headliner. My cousin's in the front row 
or like two or three rows back, you know, it's all standing room. And, you know, everyone's like handing around a joint. So this guy next to him passes him a joint. He takes a hit off of it, passes it back. And the guy looks at him. He's like, so what'd you think of that first band? He's like, ah, they fucking sucked. And he looked over at who he was passing the joint to, and it was uh, Joe Perry. (laughs) Oh, man. Whoopsie. And he was like, yeah, they did. (laughs) All right, Man Crush, what do you have for the music round? Oh, man. Once again, January 4th, 1988. Must have been a big day in 1988 or big. Uh, Slim pickings this time of the month, like Drew was saying. we only hit January like once every year and every year I forget like what a void wasteland, especially <laughs> the beginning of January is for yep. pop culture. Uh, oh, it uh, does. Everything goes to sleep. It it really does. I mean, have no fear though. There's always something to pick. Like we all have something. It just might not be a juggernaut. I, you know, I venture to say this pick is probably not as popular as my last few music picks that I've had over the last month. But I, I hope that, you know, when we do this, that it spurs a memory for people and maybe it's something you haven't heard of in a long time. And you're like, oh, shit, I remember that. And you go to Spotify and listen to it. I, I think that's if you take anything away from it, I hope that's what you take away from this. Uh, but this album, it, it did actually get certified gold, uh, sold over half a million copies. And it was a studio debut. Uh, surprisingly, this album, it would climb to number 50 on the U.S. Billboard 200. Uh, featured three singles, uh, of which uh, One More Reason, Electric Gypsy, and my personal favorite love song of all time, uh, Sex Action. This album, it's 36 minutes. It's uh, glorious hair metal from the late 80s. It's not quite glam. It's not quite heavy metal. It's not quite rock. I find this is like a pretty in-between album between like the glam metal scene and the meteoric rise of grunge, like right in 1988. Uh, it probably leans more towards glam, but you totally do catch the grittiness in the album of grunge. Like it, I mean, it's obviously it's not grunge, but you can catch like grunge elements in there where I listened to it today and I was like, wow, I never noticed that before. Uh, now the band itself, it's kind of a project of the times. You had uh, the drummer, Stephen Riley. He was previously a wasp. The bassist was Kelly Nichols, formerly of Faster Pussycat. You had uh, Phil Lewis, who was the lead vocalist. He was from a band called Girl out of the UK. And then you had the former founding member of Guns N' Roses, Tracy Guns, on lead guitar. They would go through all kinds of lineup changes forever. They, as a matter of fact, they still are. Uh, but last year sometime, I told the whole story about how Tracy Guns, they merged the original LA Guns with Hollywood Rose 1985 to create Guns N' Roses. Really quick version, if you never heard that. Basically, uh, Tracy Guns was super close with Axl Rose. They were like best friends at the time. And Tracy Guns just believed that the band was becoming a drag. And he thought his relationship with uh, Axl felt like it was on the rock, so he quit. And he was replaced by Slash. The end. I mean, it's <laughs> pretty much what happened. He went back to L.A. Guns, and that's it. Uh, but in any event... Uh, this is a great hair metal album and I'm using hair metal loosely because I really can't define exactly what it is. it's got a lot of elements in this. Uh, but my take here, uh, had they released this album a few years prior to 1988 when they had the opportunity to, they left, you know, probably in late 1985 before Guns N' Roses really kicked everything off. Had they released this in 86 or so, maybe 87, I think LA Guns would have been a bigger household name 
than they ended up being. But unfortunately, they released this in 1988, and grunge was like right around the corner, like ready to beat the shit out of all bands and steal their lunch money. Uh, at right. that point, especially hair metal bands. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it is what it is. But on January 4th, we get L.A. Guns by L.A. Guns. Wow. So nice. Not not a bad album. It's only 36 minutes. If you remember it, go to Spotify, play the whole thing. You'll It'll be over before you know it. You'll probably play it a second time. That's what I did today. All right. Let's pass it down to Scott Schiaffo for the ruling. Well, this is really hard, man, because I, first of all, I'm old, a old AF. <laughs> I grew up with all of the, all of the older bands you guys are talking about. I grew up when they were new and their records were just coming out. The first rise of Aerosmith in the seventies, I was, you know, in my teens. So they were, they were, they were the guys, they were the new stones, just like guns were the new Aerosmith and so forth and so forth. LA guns. I love, uh, are you familiar with an album called Hollywood Vampires? No. That was one of the most underrated, underheard records from that era. Great, great tracks, killer songs, great playing. I don't know how that album, I guess a lot like uh, even LA Guns themselves just never got their due, I don't think, in a lot of ways. And it's I agree with timing. that. Yeah. yeah, it's a timing yeah. thing. Is it um, Hollywood Vampires? Is that. Uh, Johnny Depp? No, no, no. That's um, Hollywood Vampires was the name of the album. Oh, I'm sorry. Hollywood, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hollywood Vampires is the name of Depp and Alice Cooper and all those guys. Okay, right. gotcha, gotcha. Right. Hollywood Vampires was the name of an L.A. Guns album. I'm 98% sure that came after, you know, after the second or third album. Uh, Probably once they changed the lineup, too, yeah. Um, but... Um, Man, this is going to be a very hard one because I am a musician at heart. I grew up with all this stuff. Um, mm, and it's a two-point round. <laughs> this, this is this is a big round. Uh, no pressure. Oh, man. <laughs> Just laying it on. Uh, Go with the heart. Who picked heart? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, you know, I I love Carlos as a player, but he was, uh, you know, I, I respect his work and I've followed him for years, but he was never one of the guys that really hit it home for me. But he's a he's actually a very inspiring person, the way he ran his life and career. But it's uh, it's a toss up between Martin, uh, Man Crush and Drew. I don't know where to go, whether we go with L.A. Guns or we go with the. Uh, the boys. I guess ultimately you can do it uh, album versus the last show on a tour. It wasn't the last show. It was the best <laughs> The best show. <laughs> it was a show. It, no, it, was, no, a it, was, show. it was the best show per me. It was one of the shows <laughs> that didn't get canceled or rescheduled. Exactly. And it was in Pittsburgh. I mean, how or awesome it could have been that? a rescheduling. He doesn't even know. <laughs> no, that one, that one was not rescheduled. I know that for a fact. You know what? I'm going to go with Drew because of the history. Oh, the history. <laughs> sorry, man, crush. You were close. I'm really glad this isn't all done with music. I'd be tearing my hair out because I music's been my passion since I was old enough to. I was four years old, and my older cousin was literally teaching me the names of all the Beatles before I knew the names of my actual family. 
I mean, I grew up on the 60s and 70s rock, became a musician by the 80s, and I literally had a guitar in my hands if I was awake seven, eight hours, right up into my 20s, until I really caught the acting bug, and then I got really fortunate with uh, Clerks. What was your favorite band growing up? It would be hard to pick one, but I grew up with the British Invasion, so it was the Beatles, Stones, Zeppelin, who, that those four... Yeah. Like to this day, that's a desert island thing for me because Beatles, Stones, Zeppelin, who out of those four, their their music runs such a deep uh, breadth of genres, styles. And before then, you know, there was nothing like that. I mean, you had Elvis, you had Chuck Berry, you had these guys doing rock and roll and the young rascals. I got to say that the rascals, they came from the East Coast. A couple of them came from Jersey. I grew up loving those guys, and they never really got their due next to the English, their English counterparts. But it would be very, it would be almost impossible to have to pick one band. I, I could never do it. You'd have, we'd have to narrow it down to something else about the bands. And, you know, it's just. What about your favorite album? Do you have like one album that you play over anything else that's just like the pinnacle of all albums? If you can, all right, put it like this. If there's, if there's one album, you you can only listen to one album for the rest of your life. What would that album be? You couldn't get anything else. You only had one. Somebody did this to me because I'm in the same boat as you. Yeah. I, I am the whole, the word. And I think that's why I ask people this all the time, because I have no favorites of anything except for the Jets. And uh, let me announce that I am a Jets fan again. Now that they fired Adam Gase, <laughs> I'm back on board. He's back. I, yeah, I am back. Uh, that is the only thing in my life. Like the Mets and the Jets are the only two things that I know are my favorites. If you ask me like favorite album or anything, I can't do it. So that's why I like to put people yeah, on the spot. You, gotta, <laughs> you just can't. There's just too much to it. And, you know, you'd either have to go by decade or by genre or by whatever. I don't know. I, I'm thinking the White Album might be one, but... After picking that, I'm already thinking like Rubber Soul Revolver. Rubber Soul Revolver should have been a double album. And then that would have been the ultimate album. But again, I grew up in the 60s. Well, I didn't grow up in the 60s. I was born in the early 60s. I found music very early. So I came up with all those albums. Sly and the Family Stone, Otis Redding, a lot oh, of that Otis stuff. Otis is fantastic. Um, that's my sleeping music. Uh, when I uh, I throw on yeah. my, I got these new headphones. If anybody wants the coolest fucking thing, I wish they were a sponsor. It's this, uh, it's this head wrap that's also an eye cover that has uh, like headphones in the wrap, so you can actually sleep with this thing on, and it's amazing. Wow. And Otis Redding, that's like if I'm going to sleep and I want to listen to music, that's what I throw on. It's Otis Redding. Yeah, so it, that'd be impossible for me. I don't know. <laughs> All right. So you're in my boat. We, we, neither one of us can pick a favorite for anything. All right, Drew. You jumped out to a lead. Let's see if you can hold on to it heading into the movies round. All right. So I, uh, from what I saw, I don't think there were any theatrical releases the week that I had in 1999. Uh, I pulled up some dates. I didn't see anything for movies that were actually released. So I'm actually going with a DVD release which came out January 5th, 1999. And um, I'm sticking with the Aerosmith theme here. I'm going with Armageddon. 
Uh, Armageddon was released on DVD January 5th, 1999. And um, I feel like whenever you combine Michael Bay and, uh, and Jerry Bruckheimer, you can count a couple things. Uh, plots with zero holes and uh, tons of shit blowing up. So, and that's exactly what we got in this 1990. 1990- uh, 1998 classic flick Armageddon. And uh, honestly, I don't think you need me to tell you what happens here, but in case you did miss it, an asteroid's hurtling towards Earth and Bruce Willis blows it up along with himself, saving us all. And there you go. Spoiler, spoiler. Yeah, spoiler. spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but this movie was a massive summer hit, pulling in $553 million back in 1998 on a budget of $140 million, thus making it the highest grossing movie of 98. And I could talk about the cast from this movie, and there are a lot of big names, but I found this actually be a bit more interesting than that, because I feel like everybody knows like people who were in the movie. But basically, in the movie, the plan is to detonate an H-bomb on the asteroid, thus splitting it up so it misses the Earth, and the smaller parts will just dissolve in the atmosphere. However, there was a paper published in 2011 where four postgraduate physics students stated the following, and I'm going to read this quote here. <laughs> A mathematical analysis of the situation found that for Willis's approach to be effective, he would need to be in possession of an H-bomb a billion times stronger than the Soviet Union's Big Ivan, the biggest ever detonated on Earth. Using estimates of the asteroid's size, density, speed, and distance from Earth based on information in the film, the postgraduate students from Leicester University found that to split the asteroid in two, with both pieces clearing the Earth, would require 800 trillion terajoules of energy. In contrast, the total energy output of Big Ivan, which was tested by the Soviet Union in 1961, was only 418,000 terajoules. So, yeah, we're fucked, basically, is what it comes down to. Uh, Also, I love the commentary, and I don't know if you guys have seen this, but when Ben Affleck asked Michael Bay, why why it was easier to train oil drillers to become astronauts as opposed to training astronauts to become oil drillers to which michael bay replied shut the fuck up so <laughs> for my movie pick i give you armageddon dvd release january 5th 1999 nice all right man crush what do you have for the movies round oh man all right so saturday saturday january 9th 1988 uh, again, the beginning of January is literally the worst time of the year for not movies great. to be released. Not, it's not great. If I had not found this sneak peek that was being played on Saturday the 9th, that's why I threw that date out there. Uh, I would have had to go with the release of the Kip Gilman classic scavengers you guys have heard of that oh class no (laughs) everybody knows that (laughs) yeah Yeah, weird i mean however uh since it only has a whopping 45 reviews on imdb uh i forgive all you guys for uh bullshitting me uh, because i don't know what the fuck the movie is either uh there was literally there was like two new movies uh so once again it pays off do your research you find a sneak preview saves the day uh Here's a movie that brought in $124 million at the box office, which is just over $276 million in 2020, uh, which would make this one of the biggest releases of 1988. Uh, For those at home, uh, the official theatrical release date took place January 15th, 1988. Uh, The movie has a great cast. You got Bruno Kirby, Forrest Whitaker, Robert Wool, and uh, the guy in the lead role who puts on the performance of his life. Uh, too bad he would end up losing to uh, Michael Douglas for best actor in a lead role. Uh, at least he did go on. He got the Gold Globe for uh, best actor in a lead role. So 
luckily you got something here. So if you're in the mood for a very loosely based script written by a disc jockey, the best improvisation of all time, stalking Vietnamese women for dates, radio that puts podcasts to shame, deep insight into Richard Nixon's testicles, an 80s version of MASH, friendly Viet Cong operatives, a dude that sounds just like Joe Pesci, and Robin Williams in arguably the best role in his life, then Good Morning Vietnam is the movie for you. Wow. Uh, that is, well, hold on. That is unless you're this dickbag Hal Hinson from the Washington Post. Let me read you this one. This fucking gem. Uh, it's, it's beyond compulsory and condescending. It's merely a Robin Williams concert movie welded clumsily into a plot from an old Danny K picture. It hardly delivers on the promise, giving us the pure, undiluted Williams. Williams at his best. What's more, it's not even close to being his best movie. It's not even close to being good. Hal Henson, The Washington Post. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. Go fuck yourself, Hal. <laughs> but that's what I got. It's uh, Good Morning Vietnam. Classic. Absolute staple of my youth. One of yeah. my all-time favorites. Robin Williams is a fucking legend. It's amazing. Like... You watch that movie. If you don't even watch it for the comedy, if you just watch his improv on the mic, yeah, it oh, is absurd because nobody, nobody's writing that stuff. I mean, that's stuff coming right off the top of his head, and it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way to spend a Saturday night, man. Put on Good Morning Vietnam and enjoy a nice Bobby Bob beer, best beer in Vietnam. Just a touch of formaldehyde <laughs> for, <laughs> for flavor, <laughs> while wearing one of that guy's suits. Right. <laughs> All right, guys, if you like Grindhouse Pictures, and we know you do, then you are going to love Hitchhike to Hell, the film that will put the fear of family values in you and teaches you that no matter how bad things are at home, they're way worse on the road. Howard is a mild-mannered, mother-obsessed delivery driver who picks up young hitchhiking women. That's a love story. And if he finds out they have run away from home, instead of helping them... He rapes and murders them, oh, all to avenge the pain that was caused when his own sister ran away, devastating his own mom. The killer in the movie is loosely based on Edmund Kemper, who was known as the co-ed killer, whose killing spree occurred between 1964 and about 1973. Now, the role of Captain J.W. Shaw, now that's the officer in the movie that's trying to capture, you know, this homicidal maniac, is played by Russell Johnson who you're going to remember as the professor from Gilligan's Island. Oh, nice. wow. <laughs> so I present to you Hitchhike to Hell, released January 1st, 1977. Gas, ass, or grass? Nobody rides for free. Damn. That's not really the byline. Is that the byline? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it should have been. I know that came from somewhere. I was like, maybe it came from that movie. <laughs> I've never seen that. Wow. I've never even heard of that one. Yeah, actually, uh, if you're interested in seeing it, Arrow put out a, a Blu-ray edition oh, very nice. of it a couple of years ago. Yeah, talk so, to Mike Ranger wow. about that one. Because we need that on Blu-ray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or, we need that remastered. <laughs> it's on YouTube if you're interested. Give it a spin. <laughs> All right, let's go down to Scott Schiaffo for the ruling on the movies round. Well, i got to tell you, uh, it's going to be hard between Drew and Man Crush. Mark, unfortunately, I, I, I can I can appreciate the professor seeing the professor in anything other than Gilligan's Island. 
especially a a, a, a grindhouse thing. I'm going to have to see if I can find that. But uh, Armageddon, there's a pop culture story related to Armageddon that I just recently learned that is pretty interesting that you brought that up to that movie. Because for me, that might not have been a movie that was my real particular wheelhouse. But Steve Gorman, the drummer from the Black Crows, recently put out his memoir. And I read it a number of times now because I'm a big Black Crows fan. And it's a really great, enjoyable book. And basically their whole run parallels years that I had gotten into music and stayed in pop culture myself and followed along too. So I really enjoyed the book, but it turns out that they had just signed, they, they had, at that point, they had signed with Columbia after leaving Deaf America, Deaf America Records, which was Def Jam, which was Rick Rubin, which they had a bad relationship with Rick Rubin initially, unfortunately. But um, they were hard asses and they did a lot of stuff that they regret, obviously, made bad decisions. And one of those bad decisions was not giving a song from their Amorica album to the Armageddon soundtrack, which ended up being one of the biggest soundtracks, which put them in very bad standing with CBS uh, until they went and they toured with Plant, I mean, uh, Jimmy Page, rather, which gave them another life. But all that pop cultureness and all that music stuff that I know about the Armageddon soundtrack really makes me gravitate to that for that reason. Although, Man Crush, I, um, oh, now you got to help me because I'm getting old. Refamiliarize with what you what you brought to us. Oh, good morning. Go ahead, Mark. You want to do it? Right. You, you want to do it? I know oh, Mark wants to do it. Go ahead, Mark. No, I'm <laughs> not going to do you it. You want to do the I link. know you want to do, do it. The Just link. do it. I can't, I, I can't do it, actually. What? Yes, you and can. And this is the reason why I, this is one of the reasons why it holds a dear place to me. Because I worked in retail when it came out on DVD. I worked in Sam Goody chain for a while in my early 20s. And we had a, we had that on loop for a long time and it became maddening. It went from being really funny to like, you just wanted to get it off. <laughs> so I guess there's- there, uh, Did Hal Henson uh, work I, with you? <laughs> in, uh, I worked in the Paramus stores, if that means anything to you in Bergen No, County. Hal Henson was the, uh, the douchebag from the Washington Post. <laughs> oh, right, 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 oh, right, my bad. No, I don't dislike the movie, I, it just, it ended up, you know, the, the good morning Vietnam thing. <laughs> just, I heard it like a thousand million times and at work, which both both of those things suck. When you Dude, really I, I to... totally understand. It reminds it's... me of uh, the 40-year-old virgin where Paul Rudd has to keep hearing Michael yeah. McDonald. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Very similar scenario. So because of the, for no reason, Drew, I, I, I can't give you the credit only because you picked the movie for a whole other reason, which is cool. But because of all this recent cool pop culture knowledge stuff, I learned about it by reading Steve Gorman's book and anybody out there who's a Black Crows fan, I would suggest reading it. Even though there's a lot of unflattering things about the Robertson brothers, he never really throws them under the bus in a hateful, hurtful way. Those guys were all just 
And like every rock band is a clown car. Yeah. Yeah. That's his line. And it's true. You know, they make a bunch of bad decisions. Their ego gets the best of them. And the ones that last, it's a miracle. But uh, I got to go. I'm going to go with Drew in Armageddon on that All one. All right. Were you going to the uh, the Black Crows tour this past year before it got canceled? No, I, I, I didn't uh, have tickets or I wasn't even aware of it. I found, you know, I, I because of COVID, not only did I do my own audio book, but I, I went nuts reading a bunch of books that I wanted to read for a long time. So like I read the Anthony Kiedis book because I'm a Peppers fan. Although I love those guys' music. I grew up with their music. I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of their antics because they did get caught up in a lot of stuff yeah. that was not too pleasant in the Me Too movement. There was a lot of lawsuits against them. They were real maniacs. And wow, I didn't I was never that even know big that. a fan of their behavior. <laughs> but um I mean I mean really it's like assaulting women. Wow. And it was unnecessary. Wow. But but I love their music and I and I love the band. But um so I read the Keatus book, I read uh Steve Gorman's book, phenomenal book, uh, Keith Richards' life. And I read all these books a couple of times because here we are in lockdown now going on a year, right? Is it true that they use Keith Richards' blood in the uh, the COVID vaccine? <laughs> Is that it, man? They that's, should. That's why I thought it was oh, DNA God. regeneration from Keith Richards. <laughs> Very, that, that's, that's good. I like that. That gets a... <laughs> that would be cool. Like I think a lot more people would be cool about taking it if they knew Keith Richards' yeah, blood. True. Was in it. You get a little piece of Keith. Yeah. <laughs> like in the in the Kiss comic book when you got a little bit of their blood. Right. <laughs> same same kind of thing. All right, Drew Zachman. Looks like you won this game. Congratulations, man. Great picks again this week. Man, killed with and you had the latest date too. I figured uh I thought Mark I thought the seventies were gonna have this one when I, I started doing my research. I was like, this is gonna be like a seventies landslide. It's not a worst of, man. No, well, you know, sometimes I think <laughs> especially in the beginnings of the year, I I just thought that the seventies would have been stronger. But that's funny. So much hinges on your judge, your judge's age <laughs> and your judge's pop culture. Ben, yeah, it's, it's right? so true. Yeah, because any of those could have went any way. You guys had a lot of great. You shows. never know. Finding things that that was you know music. I think there were two albums. I never even heard of the bands. I was like, well, let me try a different avenue. So I was looking up like tours. I was trying to find because I know you're from Jersey, so I was trying to find uh, like venues like uh, at the Asbury Park Convention Center or like Stone Pony or right. Birch Hill or like Trent right. or something like that. Or maybe there was a concert I went to. PNC bank. Art exactly. Center, yeah. Yeah. Know? So I'm like, maybe there's something, but that's how I wound up getting onto uh, Aerosmith. And I was like, what kind of concerts are going on back things? I'm pretty sure I saw like seven dust, like 15 times in the like late nineties and early two thousands. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't find one of their shows, but yeah. Dude. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. But before you go, dude, tell us about the book. You just talked about it briefly before how you uh, you know you used COVID to go ahead and do the audio side. And for people like me, like I don't have time to read anything. Mark asked me all the time. He's like, dude, how do you have time to do some of the shit that you do? It's And it's because <laughs> I listen to it. Like I don't have time to read stuff. But like if somebody's reading it to me, so when I saw your book, it's Vicious Dogs Attack Me and Sleepless Nights in Summer, right? And uh, Correct. I was like, and then when I saw that you were reading it, that's that always means more to me when the author is reading it. Cause I think the feel is much different. 
Thank you for saying that because that that was Audible's big sell with working with me about because I was going to do it. We were going to have Brian O'Halloran reading. We were Mar and they did. They recorded a lot of the parts. Marilyn Gigliotti from Clerks read. Uh, a lot of people I know throughout the film and music biz were going to read, and I thought we'll make it a cool guest readers thing. But that 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 idea started to die because it was hubbed off the back of the original Clerks 3 that never happened either about five or six years ago. So the whole idea of the audiobook just got shelved. But during that time, Audible became a huge, huge thing, which is very cool. And then COVID hit, and I spoke with the people at Audible, and they said, no, you know, it's much better to get the author to read it. You're an actor. It's crazy. You should be reading your book. Um and it's like I said, it's a it's a small book. It's it's you know it's not a it's a little paperback book. I don't know why I'm showing audio. We're not we're not on video. You can make I'm running you can make the book. you can make believe. Show it. Oh my god. Anyway, like I said, some of the poems are literally four 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 lines long. Some of the stories are only one page. It's not hard reading or in depth reading. Uh, there's like. I don't know, it's like 80 or 90 short little poems and stories. So it went really well. It went pretty quickly during COVID as we were all locked in. It took quite a while to get the master files approved because of COVID. Audible had a lot less people working in their Q&A, their uh, quality control department. So that ended up taking the most of the time because I did all the reading in March April and it didn't really get released until the end of August, September, but um, it's gotten a very nice response from the hardcore clerks, people who know my past from discussing my past on podcasts and at conventions. And uh, I just feel very fortunate to have had uh, uh, been part of that film because it's lived, it's living on and on and on. And Kevin goes on and on and on and, we just all got to be in the reboot, which was nice yep. uh, out in New Orleans. And so I just feel blessed because it did help springboard my ability to continue working as a character actor. And as a musician, I did a lot of score uh, work for indie films that I was either in the cast of or I got to know a lot of indie directors who knew about my music studio and started to use me for their film music. So uh, I just feel very blessed and fortunate. It's so cool. Uh, and one of the reasons we're, we're huge clerks fans, obviously huge Kevin Smith fans of his other movies, but you're actually the third person now from clerks that, that we've <laughs> spoken to. I feel like we need to go through the whole class because we, we had Marilyn, I think first man, that was probably like yeah. four or five years ago. And then uh, of course, Brian, and then we got to hang out with Brian, super cool guy. And now you're on super cool guy. Like, I think all the people that were there, super nice people, everyone's super funny. And like, what stories do you have about when you were recording and being there? Cause it seemed like, uh, you know, the budget was low and you guys just did your scene and you were out. Was it like that for you? Or were you kind of around the production for a couple of days and see things like, uh, go on or whatever? No, uh, that's true. I was only there. Well, he did rehearse. So we had rehearsal days. 
where we went down and we were he rehearsed our scenes while he was shooting. He was rehearsing in in the quick stop, not the I'm sorry, shooting in the quick stop mostly. And then at RST Video was where that was like production headquarters where we were hanging out and rehearsing. So I went down for a rehearsal or two. And then it was the uh, it was just one day for me. They ran that scene about four or five times, probably four to be realistic, because he didn't have the luxury of a lot of takes because film cost a lot of money, even black and white film. So he didn't have the luxury of not only a lot of takes, but he didn't have the luxury of a lot of different shots where you get two shots, one shots, reaction shots, you know, coverage is what they call it. Uh, It was shot like a play in a lot of ways because of that reason. So, no, I was not down there that much. Uh, I I mean, they were all cool people. We had fun. Kevin was, when I met Kevin and I got to know him a little bit, the first thing I thought was, we're in great hands because the guy really was hilarious. And he had such a command of language. Speaking with him, I felt like I was talking to somebody much older. And I was much older than the rest of them. I, not much, but I was like six or seven years older than the rest of the cast. The main cast, they were all in their earlier 20s. I was almost 30 at the time. So, uh, you know, I, I was very impressed by Kevin, just the way he handled himself, how funny he was, and his command of language was impressive to me. And uh, But no, I didn't get to know them well, and they're... The the goofiest story on set for me was I had, you know what a pickle in a pouch is? No. What is that? (laughs) You don't want me to guess. I didn't either. (laughs) It's literally what it sounds like at at convenience stores and delis. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Pickle in a pouch. Yeah, yeah. You know, I reacted the way you just reacted. (laughs) I thought it was a sex thing. (laughs) I never saw that in my life because we were allowed to, like, grab a yodel or whatever. That was what you had. At the quick stop, you ate in between takes. And I saw this pickle in the pouch, which was like ridiculous to me. <laughs> and I took it home. I still have it, man. No shit. <laughs> it's, still in, it's still in the pouch. It's still okay. It shrunk up a little bit because it's in vinegar. Yeah, right. But I still have it, which is nuts. I know. I know it's nuts. But I took that home because I thought it was the coolest thing. What is know? the expiration date on that pickle? I have no idea. I, don't, I haven't looked. I don't know. But because it's in vinegar, they probably, they're like Keith Richards. They're going to last forever. Yeah. <laughs> you have the cure to COVID in a <laughs> pickle. Yeah, about. maybe. But I also have the trach ring and I have the bag that he comes out with. Still, I kept all that stuff. And there's some props people who. I know are interested in it. We'll see. Maybe I'll work with them because they're really great people. But um, I didn't get to know everybody personally until a decade later when the convention circuit really became big and the film caught on as a really big cult thing. And we started getting booked in the conventions. Then it was like 10 years, uh, four or five times a year on the road with Brian and Marilyn and traveling around and getting to meet the fans and, you know, that's been a real wonderful blessing of that movie, something I never would have saw coming because in my day that that culture didn't exist. Right. Convention culture really was comic books and super geeks. It wasn't where it was celebrities and movie people that started 
little at a time and grew within the 90s into the 2000s where it became you had like film and and uh, artist gallery and then you had your pop culture but back in the late 70s early 80s comic book conventions were really just super comic just book comics, geek guys right yeah. right right do you uh i know they're starting to do some now because we had felissa rose on like uh I don't know, man. It it seems like it was yesterday, but that was probably like six, seven months ago. And she's huge in the uh, the cons. And I'm, yeah, I'm, she's I'm, great. Yeah, I've been at a few shows with her. She's really sweet. I'm seeing now that she's going back to some. So are you uh, are you starting to go back now, or I personally, I don't have anything booked. For, well, no, I have. There's something booked in 2021. Um, I think it might be uh, Saratoga Springs. But, you know, everybody's we don't know what's really going to happen and everybody's gun shy because it's going to have to really take many months of the vaccine, many months of the numbers really going down. And then many months of people believing you're safe in some big giant crowd. Everybody at cons wears masks anyway. So, well, there you go. (laughs) I mean, what what the fuck is the difference? Valid point. It's not it's it's not funny, I'm going to say, but it. There's a thing called con cough and con flu that was very real before COVID. No shit. No, because you're stuck in poorly ventilated ballrooms and a lot of people would get sick, but you'd get, you know, you get a cough or a cold. Right. You get con cough. Like, so that was something not big and not deadly, but it was something that would happen to a lot of people. And enough. So it's going to take a while, I think, until they're really comfortable in that and our whole thing is the whole beauty i think of what happens at the meet and greets is the hanging out pressing the flesh shaking hands talking getting to take a selfie because we do all that you know with the fans we're very fortunate to have them so we're you know the 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 money clock's not ticking at the clerk's booths at least never any of the booths i'm a part of you know it's super reasonably priced and you'll get a chunk of our time because we dig meeting everybody, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I I totally get that. Um, we're, you talk about Saratoga Springs. What is that? Empire Comic Con? Well, no, those are two. That's just, I think it's the same cat, actually, that runs it. I don't know if I should name drop him or not, if he would like that or not. But there's a it was called Chase Con. Saratoga Springs and Empire are actually not. No, I'm wrong. They're not the same people. They started becoming competitive. Because they were like an hour and a half. Yeah, away. that's all. I think the other one's altered reality, right? Mark, is that the one that we? Yeah, altered reality is altered the one that uh, we used to do the con circuit too, but we haven't done it in a while, obviously because of COVID. But we haven't done right. it in like two years or so. Right. But we used to do them all the time, and I, I totally understand what you're talking about. Like, if you have a booth for the day, not only can you get con cough, but you just lose your damn voice after right and you can hear just me with you guys i'm i guess part of getting old something's happening with me but after i'm really going at it well it happened on the set of clerks after the third take of that gum guy scene i mean he's losing his mind and really yelling (laughs) i had no voice at the end of that night but i i literally was walking around the parking lot of the quick stop in a daze because that's how frenzied after four takes of that of the riot and yelling and screaming and, you know, so it was great. It was a wonderful experience. It's an amazing scene. 
do you have anything else that's coming up or you just want you want to plug your website and your uh like where to get the book and all that stuff yeah well scottschiaffo.com is a is a place where you could get links to everything else uh it's 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 my name at all the social media i'm pretty active on social media it's easy to get a hold of me i'm fortunate like i said i have more of a grassroots career where i did a lot of indie film uh vulgar was another one that we did with kevin's um, crowd that, you were you weren't one of brian's rapists though no i wasn't thankfully <laughs> were you i was gonna say were you mad that you weren't one no of no rapists? not really uh, i um <laughs> Oh God, that, that script had us all sort of <laughs> cringing. And, when you read that, were you like, huh? All right. I'm going to try to be quick. Cause I know we've really taken a lot of time. I, I read that script on the flight deck. You know what a flight deck is of a mental institution when they no. call it the flight deck. No, the flight deck on any mental institution is where you go for three days of evaluation usually in a straitjacket. I had gotten, uh, I had landed up in an emergency room and this was very common for me in the nineties from being, you know, blacked out drunk for days. And I would have a lot of health repercussions from that. And I would end up in the emergency room and quite unruly to say the least. What happened was they put me in the heart wing. I, took out the IVs. I went out the emergency exit. I went to the local deli. I got a brand, a big bottle of brandy. I drank it down. I ran back into the hospital, tried to go back into the bed, you know, blind (laughs) drunk. Meanwhile, they saw that they put me in leather restraints for three days. So I'm in the flight deck in leather restraints. And one of my closest friends says, Hey, you got something in the mail while you were away. It was the script for vulgar. So I read that script (laughs) In the nut house. Oh my god! Wow. That's a story. I guess that needs to be on the IMDb too. Yeah, that's not ideal, but that's a crazy <laughs> well, story. You know, I'm very open about it now because very I'm blessed to be sober 16 years. Uh, Congratulations! I don't I don't mess around with any illicit substances. I'm not an angel. I'm an older guy. I do have some prescription medications that are very well managed. I don't abuse them but I don't drink anymore. And alcohol was really my main poison. I mean, I was the walking dead when I drank. So I'm fortunate. So I look back at it and I'm very honest about it because I'm hoping it touches people in a way that again, I don't, if we have laughs, it's, it's, it's just for the sake of finding levity in some of the madness. Cause it really is a debilitating, heartbreaking thing to either be right. an alcoholic or have one, in your close circle. It's not a, there's nothing fun or good about it. It's a horrible experience. Alcoholics take hostages. Oh, for sure. And I think yeah. if anybody, you know, if they, they listen to your words now and listen to your book again, vicious dogs attack me and sleep as nights as summer. You'll get that through each one of these poems. You'll, you get, you know, the despair and everything else that you're going through. And I think, you know, maybe that will help people. It is, it's dark, but at the same time you see, you know, you come out the other side of it. Right. Yeah. And uh, I'm glad you did. That was one of the nice things about the book that, that I never saw coming either. Uh, Cause it's not a, it doesn't apologize for the lifestyle and it doesn't promote the lifestyle. It just kind of is what it is. 
and the fact that I was fortunate enough to come through it now and to be able to talk about it, people see some type of recovery in it, even though there's nothing about it that's a recovery book. Yeah, right. You just you but you get the feeling of you see somebody else that can do it. Maybe if you're going through the same thing, you can go, all right, this guy got through it and he was in dark times. Right. But I thought it was excellent. I mean, you know, obviously, like I said, it it's don't listen to it at work. Ah! But, you know, you know, if you're you're sitting around listening <laughs> to your car, it's only an hour long. So you can get the whole thing out, you know, very quickly yeah. uh, before, you, you know, your kids are hearing it or anything else. But I had again, I had the luxury of wearing that head thing that I was talking about before. So nobody knew what I was right, doing. Yeah, you got to get them as a sponsor, man. <laughs> I should. I'm sure like a hundred companies are doing that now, but dude, thanks again, Scott, for coming on and please come back on anytime. Like any of you guys are, you're always welcome on. It's fun talking to you guys and you're great judgment. You got to get Ernie. I'm going to speak to Ernie O'Donnell, Rick. Oh, Harris. sweet. Yeah, totally. Oh, that would yeah. be four. Yeah, he's, <laughs> a, he's a sweetheart of a guy and he doesn't, um, he loves doing these things. He enjoys them, but he's not of a, his personality is not such that he walks in the circles of it much, but he does enjoy them when the two collide. So I'll, I'll reach out to him and tell him about you guys. Awesome, man. I appreciate it. We'll, uh, we'll do a weightlifting episode. For yeah. You. <laughs> and you know, Ernie, Ernie, uh, Ernie's probably been pound for pound in the cast of more Kevin Smith films than even Brian and Jeff and, or just as many as almost just as many as Jay. It's crazy. You know, but wow. Ernie pops up in a lot of different roles in a lot of different movies. Ernie's in red state, you know, Ernie's in Jersey girl. Ernie's the guy in Jersey girl. That's heckling a fleck. Yeah. He's kind of like the lawn Cheney of the view is skewed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but dude, thanks again. Hey, uh, be well. And we'll be talking to you, man. You too. Thanks a lot, guys. Good night. Yeah. Awesome. Talking to you. Take care, Scott. Take care, brother. All right, duelers. Well, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this episode right here. But thanks again to Drew Zachman, who won this week. Congratulations, man. If you've missed an episode, you can always head back over to our webpage at duelingdecades.com. And while you're on those interwebs, surf on over to facebook.com forward slash duelingdecades, where you can join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. So until next time, duelers. We're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.